Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Colorectal Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as other colorectal organizations as well, and we really want to thank them for their um, actually support of the program and also helping spread the word of the program. And we're delighted to have so many of you on the call today. We have over 314 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Mexico, Kenya, and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Taiho Oncology, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have the best of the best speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III, and Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. Dr. Benson will be addressing the progress in the treatment of colorectal cancer, the role of precision medicine, including diagnostic testing, what's new in targeted treatments, and communicating with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. It's uh, an appropriate topic uh, currently to discuss uh, colorectal cancer because March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So uh, we hope on this call we'll provide some uh, important information for you. Uh, three of my four topics today are very interrelated. Uh, progress in the treatment of colorectal cancer, the role of precision medicine, including diagnostic testing, and what's new in targeted therapy. Uh, furthermore, uh, Dr. Bakai Saab, who will follow me, uh, will expand on some of these important advancements. The good news is that the incidence of colorectal cancer in the U.S. Uh, is decreasing and survivorship is increasing. Uh, especially in older individuals. And uh, this improvement is for a variety of reasons, including more screening, increasing awareness, and the work from many of our institutions and organizations, including our patient advocacy groups that are promoting awareness. Uh, there is concerning news, however, that younger individuals are showing an increase in incidence of colorectal cancer. We're not totally sure why. Uh, there may be factors such as rising rates of obesity, uh, diabetes, and uh, uh, diet uh, changes. Um, but also, there's a great deal of interest in studying what's referred to as the microbiome. Our intestines uh, include a, a variety of different bacteria, and there's some work that suggests that certain bacteria may predispose an individual uh, in terms of developing colorectal cancer. And this is an area now of intense interest and much more research. So we hope to get a better handle on the contribution of the microbiome and what we hope to develop strategies how we might uh, intervene and uh, improve the microbiome or at least alter it such that we decrease uh, risk. Uh, it's also important that the microbiome is uh, interrelated with our immune system. And so there's a great deal of work uh, looking at this uh, association. And uh, overall, uh, 
we uh, we need to continue our work to better understand uh, the risks and the biology of disease to have further impact, uh, certainly uh, in terms of screening and treatment. Much of the work uh, that has occurred over certainly the last 10 to 15 years has focused on improving patient selection as we think about treatment strategies. In the past, we would group people uh, together as if uh, the disease was all one entity. So, for example, uh, we would uh, enter people with metastatic colorectal cancer who had not received previous therapy and view them as if uh, they all had the same disease. And what we have learned is that there are distinct biological differences in terms of colon cancers, and it's, it's further complicated because a tumor is not just one cancer cell. It's actually a collection of tumor cells, which we refer to as tumor heterogeneity. And one of the uh, complexities of designing treatment strategies is that people uh, can have different tumors, say, in, in the liver, and each of these tumors may actually have a slightly different tumor biology. And thus lies the challenge, how do we address this tumor uh, heterogeneity? Nonetheless, uh, we, we are making progress. And the progress uh, is not just in drug therapy, but also in surgery, radiation, and imaging. So, uh, for example, um, with uh, improved uh, uh, MRI imaging for rectal cancer, we are getting a, a much better uh, view of rectal cancers and able to improve our clinical staging. Uh, this is important as we look at strategies uh, to provide patients treatment before surgery, referred to as neoadjuvant therapy. And this is an area of intense research where we're looking at the possibility, for example, for some patients, can we decrease radiation doses? For some patients, can we avoid radiation altogether? Uh, there may be people who get such a good response that we may be able to either delay or avoid surgery. And uh, also, as we look more into the biology, we hope that uh, some of the agents we're developing can get integrated in neoadjuvant uh, treatment strategies to improve the outcome of people with rectal cancer. The evolution of treatment uh, includes a number of newer agents, and these uh, include chemotherapy drugs, biologic drugs, and immunotherapy. And at least some of these agents have been developed um, because of improved understanding of tumor genomics. When we talk about uh, genomics, uh, we uh, discuss uh, what's known as uh, uh, inheritance or, or germline um, changes, and this is what we're born with, uh, versus uh, the genetic changes that happen, uh, which uh, eventually result in a cancer developing. And currently now, we have uh, some standard tests that uh, we uh, really mandate for any patient, for example, with metastatic colorectal cancer. And these include testing for what's known as KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF. And there are some people who have what we call wild-type KRAS, where we also look at another uh, important factor referred to as HER2. What we recommend uh, for all patients is what's referred to as uh, microsatellite testing. 
And just to uh, explain this a little bit, um, this refers to what's known as the DNA mismatch repair uh, pathway. And uh, you may uh, hear this described as a microsatellite instability, or MSI, or deficient mismatch repair. Now, we evaluate MSI and deficient mismatch repair differently in the laboratory, but biologically, these are viewed as the same phenomenon. And these are exactly the individuals um, who may benefit from immune therapy. Um, what this mismatch repair pathway refers to is uh, microsatellites are short uh, repeating DNA sequences across the human genome. And these sequences are prone to errors. And fortunately, we have genes that can correct these errors routinely. However, uh, these mismatch repair genes can become altered, and this can happen through germline mutations, and as I said, that's what we're born with, or by non-inherited loss of expression of these mismatch repair genes. About 15% of people with colon cancer have this phenomenon of mismatch repair, although only a small percentage of these individuals have uh, the inherited phenomenon, which we refer to as Lynch syndrome. And it is important to diagnose that because it has um, uh, treatment, uh, screening, and follow-up consequences. Uh, most of the individuals with mismatch repair have what we call uh, sporadic uh, uh, incidents, and uh, this is not what we're born with, um, but uh, observation um, uh, in a non-inherited uh, phenomenon. Well, we've also uh, learned at, uh, that there is a difference in terms of where uh, colon cancer occurs in the colon. Uh, so uh, colon cancer uh, anatomically can be viewed as either in the right colon or the left colon. And for years, we've known that there are differences in terms of prognosis, if a person has a right versus left colon cancer. But what we have learned now is that there are different uh, biological uh, uh, phenomenon across the colon, so that the biology of the right colon is really different from the left colon. And this is reflected in some of these um, uh, genomic changes that I mentioned. So in the right colon, it's more common for people to have an MSI tumor or a BRAF tumor, and the, the clinical presentation and risk of spread of the disease uh, can be different compared to the left. Also, in terms of treatment, those individuals who have uh, RAS wild-type disease versus uh, mutated RAS tumors are much more likely to benefit from anti-EGFR therapy, and the two principal drugs we have are cetuximab and panitumumab. However, uh, if a person has a right-sided tumor, they're far less likely to benefit from anti-EGFR therapy. So these observations, uh, not, not only are we increasing our understanding of the biology, but they can have important uh, 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 meaning in terms of what we choose in terms of a uh, treatment strategy. And there is a, a lot more uh, work ongoing uh, for us to uh, understand tumor biology. So, for example, more recently, uh, there's been the observation of what's referred to consensus molecular subtypes of colorectal cancer. And, and this has identified four distinct subtypes 
of colorectal cancer, and these subtypes have these biological differences in their characterization, and also uh, there are differences in terms of how patients respond to treatment and which treatments might be uh, most uh, appropriate for these uh, individuals based on uh, the uh, subtypes, and this is an area that needs much more work, but again, it's improving our understanding. And finally, I'd just like to touch base uh, on my fourth topic, which is communicating with the healthcare team. Um, patients who have colorectal cancer really need a multidisciplinary team. And for many individuals, this can include the medical oncologist, a surgeon, radiation oncologist, gastroenterologist, pathologist, uh, dietitian, uh, perhaps uh, uh, psychiatry, um, financial counseling. Um, it, it's really a comprehensive team. Uh, of individuals and and it's important for each individual to discuss with their team uh, the recommendations and, and particularly if a person has specific concerns so an individual may have very important dietary concerns they may be very worried about their ability to pay for the, their health care or do not understand their insurance. And, and so being able to talk about this and for people to meet with the appropriate member of the healthcare team is essential. Uh, there are also some uh, recommendations um, uh, when you're communicating with the healthcare team. For example, for your office visit, it's important to bring someone with you. Having an extra pair of ears and perhaps someone who can take notes for you can be uh, very helpful so that when you go home, it can uh, enhance your discussion with family members and, and help you think about the various issues related to your care. Uh, it is important to take notes and also before your office visit to write down your questions so then when you when you meet with your health care team, uh, you've got your list there and you can make sure that the important things on your mind are actually covered. And also, uh, uh, just as a reminder uh, to conclude, uh, be careful how you use email. Uh, it, at my institution, we uh, routinely tell people, if you're feeling really sick or have a sudden change, we don't want you to email us. We want you to call us so that we can intervene uh, promptly. Uh, and uh, with that, I'll conclude. These are just uh, some uh, concepts, and uh, I hope that that's helpful as you uh, uh, think about colorectal cancer, and uh, I'll turn the call back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful, really a wonderful setting the stage for the whole program, actually, and covering really important topics. So thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Tanyos Bakai-Saab, and Dr. Bakai-Saab will be a, is, is leader, gastrointestinal Cancer Program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Professor Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, Consultant, Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And Dr. Bakai Saab will be addressing evolving, evolving treatment strategies, predicting response to treatment, clinical trial updates, and side effects, symptom, and pain management, their important role in managing your cancer. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bakai Saab. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure uh, again to be uh, to be speaking, and uh, it's very exciting times for uh, for colorectal cancer. We're moving the needle forward uh, very quickly as as we break down uh, 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 colorectal cancer into all these uh, different 
subgroups of, of diseases and, and, and appropriately target uh, every sub, subgroup with these uh, emerging biologics and, 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 and uh, immunotherapeutics. So it's a very exciting time. As Dr. Benson uh, mentioned, uh, <clears throat> you know, this, uh, this just emphasizes how, uh, how much progress we've made and, and, and the survival of our patients is, is, is tremendous. Uh, we, in some subgroups, we, 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 even with stage four cancer, we are talking about cures, curing cancer, uh, even in later stages, which is really an, an important uh, aspect of our care. Uh, you know, precision medicine is, is, is a buzzword that has become uh, very, uh, very important in, in, in cancer care overall, but in, in colorectal cancer, it's, uh, I think at this point of time, uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's a key driver for how we decide on treatment and treatment options. Uh, I think everyone uh, uh, and every patient should have uh, their tumor interrogated for genetic alterations, and these are the genetics of the cancer. Uh, Dr. Benson mentioned briefly this and mentioned also the importance of doing germline testing, meaning testing for the genetics of the patient and the potential predisposition for cancer. This is actually just looking primarily at can we find any targets within the cancer cell, uh, within the DNA, uh, RNA, or others that we can go after with specific agents that are either available to us uh, in the clinic or available through clinical research. And we have a lot of these uh, agents available uh, uh, to the clinic and many, many more being available now through clinical trials. So it becomes very important to, to have this genetic sequencing from day one. There's a minimum, uh, but my preference is, of course, to try to get every, uh, every patient tested uh, through the gamut of what we call next-generation sequencing, uh, which will allow us essentially to uncover uh, uh, things we are looking for specifically to the, for the clinic and things we are looking for for clinical trials. There are two types of elements we look at. One is called prognostic and the other one is called predictive. Both are important. The prognostic meaning telling us you know, how the disease behaves and also may, may tell us what, what, uh, what, uh, what overall uh, uh, level of chemotherapy intensity we will need. In addition to the right-sided versus left-sided tumors that Dr. Benson touched upon, and these are important because they decide whether, for example, an EGFR inhibitor may work or not uh, based on sidedness, meaning if all the elements align and the patient has a right-sided tumor, agents that target this protein EGFR, such as cetuximab and penetumumab, have no likelihood of working, and we would avoid them in that situation. So that's very important. That's not a test that just you look uh, at where the tumor originated from, right side versus left. But there are elements such as uh, a protein called KRAS, K-R-I-S, or NRAS, N-R-A-S. Uh, combining them, we call them all RAS, uh, and the presence of another mutation called BRAF, V600E mutation, or the presence of HER2, amplifications in the tumor, all these predict for lack of effectiveness. So these are negative biomarkers for the effectiveness of EGFR inhibitors. Now, this may take away an option, but it's important to understand that this option can have its own toxicities and effects and would like to avoid it if we don't need it, and that's important to have from day one before we take a decision on how to best treat our patients. Now, Moving to the what we call the positive bio, predictive biomarkers, and there are a number of them that are available to to us now, again on or off clinical trials. And that, as I said, these are exciting times for our patients with colon cancer. Some of them are common, some of them are less common, and and many of them are rare. But if we don't test consistently, even the rare will not, uh, even the common will not be depicted. But the rare becomes even rarer. So it's very important again. And I, I, I want to continue emphasizing about the importance of uh, sequencing uh, the tumor for every single patient that gets through the door and gets seen by oncology from day one because it helps us with 
the long-term planning as well as the short-term planning. We're looking at this on the long, long term, of course, for all our patients, but it's also important to decide on the short term, the strategy versus the other. We understand that, that you know, as, as tumors are individuals, uh, are as individual uh, as the patient that carries them, it's important to understand that some treatment may not work. Uh, but that that's, doesn't mean that we don't have others that, that would. That, that's part of the long-term planning. We always try our best with the first shot, but we're ready for the second, third, and fourth shot. We have a lot of options that are lined up for, for patients. And again, knowing the landscape of how the cancer behaves and what targets may be uncovered is key to have this long-term planning for our patients. You know, with our aim is remission and long-term survival and even cure uh, uh, in the most advanced stages. So what are these different uh, elements that are becoming available to us in clinic before we move on to what's coming uh, in the research world. So we talked about KRAS and NRAS as negative pre predictors for the effectiveness of EGFR inhibitors. I mean, we, we, I don't mind negative predictors because they essentially remove unnecessary treatment from our baskets. Uh, but we like the positive uh, predictors uh, even better because they tell us which agent is most likely to work in what type of tumor. So one perfect example for that, and uh, Dr. Benson mentioned the microsatellite instability, presence of high, which may relate to the Lynch syndrome, and that has implications, of course, to the patient and the family. But how does it relate to treatment per se? And these are tumors that are present in about 18% of patients in the early stages and then about 4% uh, in the patients who are uh, in the more advanced stages of the cancer. Uh, so the presence of microsatellite instability high, uh, in addition to in 50% of the cases, you know, may predict for Lynch syndrome, uh, uh, this is associated with a very high burden of mutations, meaning those tumors tend to have tons of mutations. And why is this important? It's important because it essentially makes the tumor very inflamed, very hot. Now, that invites a lot of lymphocytes, useful lymphocytes in the tumor, except the problem is that the cancer cells themselves seem to have adapted by upregulating up a, a protein called PD-1 uh, or PDL one which essentially uh, locks in those, those lymphocytes and prevents them from killing the cancer cells. This is where immune therapy becomes very useful. These agents that target PD-1 and PDL1 unlock that uh, cancer cell from the lymphocyte, and now the lymphocyte sees the cancer cells, uh, cancer cell as the enemy, and attacks it. And 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 literally, for for most of the patients, uh, this cancer goes into complete remission uh, and a cure in the most advanced stages. So that's uh, that's essentially a modality that has literally transformed these cancers from very difficult-to-treat subgroup of colon cancer to a nearly curable form of advanced cancer. Uh, and, and these agents tend to be tolerable, uh, tend to be uh, less toxic than chemotherapy, and in fact, <clears throat> uh, for many patients, you know, where we are able to move these agents to the, to, to the first line of attack, although right now being tested in clinical trials, but occasionally we've had patients who have have had access to those on, on clinical trials and have not ever needed chemotherapy after that. Four percent of our patients are in this category, so that's one uh, one subgroup of patients. There is a rare component of colorectal cancer, and those exhibit uh, fusions. Uh, and it's a type of where, you know, a part of a DNA, DNA fuses with with another uh, DNA and drives the cancer cell, and these are NTRK fusions. They're present in, in 05 to 0.7% of all colon cancers. Now, again, we may say, you know, this is a very small percent, but, you know, we see those patients. We have to test consistently 100 patients to find one, and 200 patients to find that one patient. But that one patient, essentially, with that fusion, that tumor that has these fusions, we have agents now in the clinic that are available that attack those entrac fusions, lorotrectinib and entrectinib, 
and these agents essentially uh, can shut down the cancer cell, shut down the tumor, uh, and, and reverse the course uh, of the cancer, and we see some dramatic responses with these agents uh, when applied to these uh, tumors with entrac with fusions. Um, then we have, more commonly, uh, mutations in, in, in BRAF, BRAF, V600E. Now, these are present depending on, you know, the, the, where we look. These are present in about uh, uh, anywhere between 8 uh, to 10% of all patients with colon cancer. So they're not uncommon, and that's in the more advanced stages of the cancer, of course. Uh, uh, they are typically present in, in, the, presen in the presence of RAS wild-type tumors. Uh, you can't have a mutation in RAS and a mutation in BRAF. Uh, usually you, you need a RAS wild-type tumor, and about 10% of those will have BRAF V600E mutations. Now, why is this important? No, two reasons for that. One, it helps us uh, uh, with our first line of attack, uh, with understanding that those those are the, the the mutations that are typically more aggressive, and we need to essentially go very aggressively with chemotherapy. These are the patients who we uh, or the tumors that we will need to target with a, a triplet regimen uh, of chemotherapy, uh, a triplet regimen that we call Folfox Siri. Uh, because proven again and again that this works much better in this group of patients and this group of tumors than the doublet Folfox or Folfiri. So this is where we up the ante in the first line. But more exciting, what we're getting is, is we will have soon, I hope, uh, that's now at the FDA, an approval of a two-drug regimen, two-targeted agent regimen, that essentially specifically attacks the BRF V600E mutation driven cancer cell. And this is a combination of two drugs, a drug called encorafenib uh, 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 and another drug called cetuximab. Uh, uh, now, cetuximab, interestingly, is an EGFR inhibitor. As we discussed previously, the presence of BRF V600E mutation typically tells us that these EGFR inhibitors do not work. But when you block the activated protein, BRAF, uh, by encorafenib, which specifically attacks BRF. What we found, what, uh, what folks have found, is that EGFR becomes relevant again, and now you have to block EGFR in addition to the BRF to induce that response and to induce essentially reverting the course of the cancer for, for, for most patients. And so now you combine the two, the RAF inhibitor, encorafenib and cetuximab, the EGFR inhibitor, and that combo essentially was part of this Beacon trial, uh, which looked at the combination of the two, then adding a third biologic or chemotherapy. And it turns out that doing the two is at least as good as the three biologics, much better than the chemotherapy. And across the board, from responses to long-term survival to delaying progression of the cancer, all the numbers look very favorable uh, for this. And we think for many patients, this transforms the biology of the cancer from an aggressive form of cancer to a much less aggressive, if non-aggressive, form of cancer. The good news is now this is not only being looked at in, uh, or, or being approved for this line. Uh, uh, the manufacturer of, of encorafenib is taking now this to the first line of attack. So asking the same question we asked with immune therapies, can we essentially change the biology of this cancer early on so for many patients, hopefully, we don't need chemotherapy or delay significantly the need for chemotherapy. And these studies are being built. Similar to the MSI high tumors, the BRF V600D, there is also an effort to try to move these to earlier stages of cancer, meaning can we use immune therapy in the form with MSI high or uh, RAF inhibitors plus, plus minus EGFR inhibitors in the earlier lines of therapy when these mutations or these alterations are present earlier on. And these questions are also being addressed in earlier stages. Cancers for MSI high, there's a study right now in stage 3 colon cancer that's ongoing nationwide. It's called Atomic that's looking at the role of etizolizumab in addition to chemotherapy in those patients who express MSI high. And there's a planning for a BRFE600E mutation in earlier stages as well. So this is really exciting. This is moving the field forward 
very, very aggressively uh, for us in, in a direction that is certainly very desirable and we, where we're going to see uh, a lot of changes in, in, in how this o overall, how colorectal cancer will continue behaving. In the future, we're going to break it down into all these baskets and, and identify what this, each, each of these baskets mean and attack them with, with an agent that's very specific. So it's lock and key. You, you, you know where the lock, you identify what the lock looks like, and you have a key that fits it, and then this is how we're going to essentially uh, uh, identify all these locks and keys uh, moving forward. So what's actually coming really close, and we'll talk about uh, you know what also is in the horizon. So what's getting really close to the clinic are uh, two two alterations that are drivers as well of of cancer progression. One is HER2. You may or may not have heard about HER2, which is a protein uh, that sits on the surface of the cancer cell, um, well known in the world of breast cancer and gastric cancer, not as well known yet in the world of colon cancer, although it's becoming more obvious now. In, in breast cancer, this has transformed the care of a lot of patients, these HER2 amplifications, with the advent of agents that target HER2, same with gastric cancer. And now, with colon cancer, we're uncovering that HER2 amplification is present in about uh, 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 3 to 4% of all patients with colon cancer. Uh, and so, although it seems less common, but 3 to 4% is actually a quite a significant number, similar to what we see with the MSI high. Now, why is HER2 amplification so important? Well, there are two reasons for that, and why I think it should be tested from day one, although the therapies are being tested in, in uh, second or third lines of attack. The reason for that is HER2 amplification. So when you have an amplification of this protein, it tends to negatively predict for the effectiveness of these EGFR inhibitors. So you can have the RAS wild-type tumors, the left-sided tumors, and you think... Uh, you know, these patients or these tumors may be eligible for attack with EGFR inhibitors, but then there's this is where the chance of HER2 amplification is, and that HER2 amplification negates the presence of the other uh, two, uh, two elements and makes these uh, cancers less likely to uh, benefit from EGFR inhibitors. So that's important. But the other important piece is that the presence of HER2 amplifications are also uh, in some ways serve as predictor positive predictors for the efficacy, for the, for the, for the uh, 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 effectiveness of HER2-targeted agents. And as I said, those are, for the longest time, have been looked at in breast cancer and gastric cancer with a lot of great benefit. We're seeing the same trends in colon cancer, in fact, quite significant. Uh, but it's a little different than the others. In, in, the, in the others, you need essentially primarily uh, an agent called uh, trastuzumab, uh, or, or Herceptin, uh, but but sometimes you need another one like Pertuzumab uh, or Pergetta in, in breast cancer. In uh, colon cancer, you do need Trastuzumab or Herceptin, but it doesn't seem to work too well on its own. What you need, you need to add it to another agent, and that's been found in, in, in the lab uh, work, but also that's what we're finding in the clinic. So combining, uh, for example, agents like Lepatinib, which is an oral agent with trastuzumab, to a lesser degree, pertuzumab and trastuzumab, uh, have actually shown significant responses and moving the needle forward for most patients who have essentially these upregulations, um, uh, uh, these amplifications. I mean, this is a disease that doesn't respond too well to chemotherapy, and it seems to essentially respond incredibly well to these HER2 target therapies. Recently, there's an agent called tucatinib, uh, which now is on, on path uh, to be approved in breast cancer that our group looked at in, in colon cancer with HER2-amplified tumors along with trastuzumab. More than half, I'd say almost three-quarters of the patients had a very meaningful response, and many of them are two or three years because the study is gone ongoing with remissions, with complete responses. Uh, from the combination of tucatinib and trastuzumab, we presented some of this data at, at, at ESMO, and that study is actually being expanded now uh, for uh, for a potential registration uh, with the FDA for the combination of tucatinib and trastuzumab uh, in patients with HER2-amplified colon cancer. So that's transforming the care 
of, of this subgroup of patients. Another agent that's also coming uh, close to the close uh, close to the clinic is the KRAS G12C. Again, for the longest longest time, we've had an incredible difficulty finding targets for KRAS. KRAS is that essentially lock that's almost impossible to uncover and be able to find agents for it for 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 a lot of different reasons. This is not true anymore. We're finding that you know these these locks do have keys, and the first one is KRS G12C, where we have now at least three agents being developed uh, on, in clinical trial, following very promising early data, and it seems that lung, colon, uh, and perhaps pancreas are the the the, the candidate uh, cancers uh, essentially that carry these mutations at high rate, uh, about two to three percent and we can essentially go after them. So these agents are being looked at, and they're looking very promising, and I suspect, again, this is going to follow path and ultimately make it, make it to the clinic. So these, these two, the HER2 target strategies and the KRAS G12C, those are two that are coming close. BDF V600, DMSI high, and track and RAS and others, you know, we we're, we're actually have strategies in the clinic, but we're moving them, we're moving them up the line. And then uh, before finishing that at least precision discussion, so a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, uh, liquid versus tissue biopsy. Tissue remains the golden standard, but we're finding a lot of utility for liquid biopsy. And I'll mention what liquid biopsy is. Liquid biopsy essentially is taking blood and analyzing circulating DNA. So when cancer cells break down and they spill their DNA into, into the bloodstream, we can pick it up and essentially analyze it the same way we analyze tissue, and then may tell us about a lot of these uh, alterations we discussed. And over time, it can also tell us how these alterations are being affected by the treatment. Finally, as we talked about the, what's in the clinic, what's near, now we want to talk about the horizon. Uh, there is a large effort through a trial that's running through a Mayo Clinic Cancer Center-supported network called ACRU, a study called Colomate, which is C-O-L-O-M-A-T-E, which essentially just launched. And what this study is looking at is essentially the concept of breaking colon cancer into all these baskets. And many of these baskets are the baskets that are not what we've discussed about, but a lot of the things that we think are in the horizon uh, uh, will, will further transform how we care for colon cancer into breaking it into all these small uh, like I said, subgroups of tumors and identify the correct uh, key to every lock uh, that will hopefully uh, move uh, colon cancer essentially into 100% curable disease. So I'll, I'll stop at this point. I know we're a little bit over time and just uh, uh, allow this to continue moving forward. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bakai Saab. Well worth the time and excellent. Excellent presentations, um, and will be time for questions as well. Our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is an oncology dietitian, Michael E. DePakey, VA Medical Center, and she'll be addressing nutrition, hydration concerns, and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bairden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, just want you all to know, kind of going into this, that nutrition and hydration are essential in your tolerance to treatment um, so that you have the energy to do the things that you enjoy and get through your treatment. Um, there may be times during your treatment that your diet will be modified, um, and this will be in response to any side effects that you may experience <clears throat> during your treatment. Some of the potential side effects include um, things like dry mouth, difficulties um, with taste changes, uh, maybe a decrease in appetite or fatigue. Um, during your treatment, your nutritional needs can change. So the plan can change along the way. So it's very important that you stay in touch with your healthcare team and communicate any challenges or new issues that, um, that you experience. If you're not able to meet your nutrition needs, it could possibly result in a delay in treatment. So keeping that open line of communication is essential. 
the role of the dietitian is to help support you. And so the information you provide the dietitian um, during your time with him or her um, can help them better help you. So if you're having specific issues pop up, take notes. Keep track of things that you're struggling with or times of the day that you're having more of a challenge than others. Um, they can help also support by giving you calorie, protein, and fluid goals um, and helping you with those modifications in your diet. Some patients may have surgery as part of their treatment plan. Of these patients, um, some may have an ostomy placed. Modifications to diet and fluid needs um, can occur. So staying in close contact with your dietitian and ostomy nurse about how to address um, these dietary changes um, will help you um, avoid issues with um, dehydration potentially, or just frustration in general. So just keep an open line of communication. So even though you're overweight, this can become a topic of your discussion I get a lot, you can still become malnourished. And when nutrition needs are not met, the body starts using protein or muscle for energy. Um, if this happens, you can experience a higher amount of fatigue, um, a decrease in your endurance, and this can lead to a lot of different things. Um, and so it's important that you listen to your healthcare team. Like I said, being overweight um, doesn't protect you from becoming malnourished. There are a lot of medications to help assist with the side effects that you may experience. Um, Keeping in touch with your healthcare team about these is just as essential as everything else. And the doctors in your healthcare team are going to know specific side effects that, are, that will come with the treatment that you're receiving. Um, to the extent of what you experience is going to be very individualized. And even if you experience the ones that they have, some people may experience some, you may experience others. So, um, Listening to their guidance in your medications and things that will help you with addressing these side effects is very important. Take your medications as they're directed. Um, and that's very, very important, especially with things like nausea and um and pain, very important. Hydration is also important, and dehydration can actually increase nausea, fatigue, can make you feel very dizzy. Remember that fluids are anything that's liquid at room temperature. These are things like water, milk, sports drinks. Um, a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10, 8 ounces of fluid a day. Treatments such as radiation can require an increase in this fluid needs, so talking with your healthcare team to understand your unique needs is essential. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team that are dedicated to helping you through this journey. And so keep in touch with them, know how to reach them, and the sooner you get with them, the better. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Burden. That was really excellent as well, and I know there'll be questions for you too. And our next speaker is Mr. A.J. Sincata Eichenfeld, and he's an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and he'll be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Sincata Eichenfeld. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. As Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. As oncology social workers, my Cancer Care colleagues and I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. We also work to remain aware of changing trends and are always seeking new knowledge in the field as a means of providing the best care possible to those who engage with our services. As we've been talking today about ways to manage your care, I'd like to speak about the importance of locating social and emotional support as part of that care network and how cancer care can be a part of your illness experience. Cancer Care is a leading national organization dedicated to providing free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All of our services are provided by Masters Prepared Oncology Social Workers and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones and supports. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including 
financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact and care. Our social workers can work with people with cancer to explore a variety of issues that they and their loved ones may face. Our short-term cancer-focused individual counseling and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They are offered in person in the New York and New Jersey area and over the phone and online nationally. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker in individual counseling can offer a space that's exclusively your own to express concerns and identify feelings. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones or your medical team, among other challenges that may arise. Our social workers can work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. Joining one of our support groups, or support groups uh, generally, offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, they are also a space to gather and provide support and obtain valuable practical information. We offer several support groups that individuals with colorectal cancer and their caregivers would be able to join, including but not limited to a specific online support group for people living with colorectal cancer. A colorectal cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Having support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network of trusted people, can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having this support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase hope and empowerment. In addition to our short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide educational workshops, reading material, and limited financial support. If you're interested in learning more about anything that I've shared or any of our services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-HOPE, which is 1-800-813-4673, to speak with one of our oncology social workers. At that point, you can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore with one of our social workers the ways in which we can offer support. Our social workers can also provide resources to access financial assistance and potential supports local to you. We look forward to hearing from you, and I really thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Misner. Oh, thank you so much. That was outstanding and really um, wonderful description of all those things that people can access from Cancer Care, all the services. Thank you. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to see how many questions we can take. And if we can't get all of your questions, I'll explain to you how to queue up for questions and get. I'll explain to all of you how to how to get your questions answered. So, Norma, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit your questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Caroline. As usual, an excellent seminar. Um, I have several questions I wanted to ask Dr. Saad. My question is, I'm a nurse social worker and a 14-year HER2 breast cancer survivor. I had a family member father who did have metastatic colon cancer. And my question is, how do, at that time in 99, they did not test, I believe, for HER2. My question is, is it, can I be predisposed, being HER2 breast cancer, uh, to colon cancer, even though I did have the Lynch test, everything was negative. But also, can a person who has breast cancer, as I said, get colon cancer? Can a person who had colon cancer, who was HER2, can have uh, breast cancer? And thank you. Oh, other thank family you. members. Thank okay. you. Thank, thank you, Stephanie. Um, Dr. Bakaisab, do you want to address that question? Yeah, no, no, that's a that's a great question. So, so the the the, the presence of HER2 itself is it does not uh, link to a hereditary form of cancer. Uh, in other words, if you if you have a HER2 a history of a HER2 breast cancer, that does not mean you're predisposed for a HER2 positive uh, colon cancer. Now. The more important question is, are there any uh, links between colon cancer and breast cancer? The answer is yes in very few patients that, uh, that, that have cancers so that are driven by inherited uh, 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 gene, such as Lynch rarely uh, links to both, but, but BRCA can, be, can drive both a colon and uh, and, and breast cancer, so meaning if, if someone has a history of BRCA, 
and breast cancer, so BRCA and breast cancer, uh, is at increased risk, slight increased risk of, of developing uh, uh, colon cancer. There are others as well. Uh, but the presence of HER2 is unique to the cancer cell and is not uh, linked to uh, an inherited genetic disorder. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, do we have any other questions? Our next question comes from Liz L. Your line is open. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Doctor. So it was an excellent seminar. Uh, what I want to ask is, my father died in his early 50s. He had colon rectal cancer. He had polyps removed. It spread. Um, I'm stage one invasive with breast cancer. I'm two years in remission. Uh, what I want to know, I always do the other um, stool testing uh, for, you know, colon rectal. I've never had a colonoscopy. Uh, I'm 68 years old. I'd like to know what advances, what test, or is there an ultrasound scan that could test the area that, you know, is affected that, you know, uh, for this colon rectal cancer? We have an excellent question. Uh, Dr. Benson, would you want to address that question in a general way, of course? So uh, in the usual guidelines we have, now th this is not relative to people who have Lynch syndrome or inherited uh, uh, colorectal cancer, but uh, for the general population, um, uh, current guidelines, although the American Cancer Society recently lowered the age to 45, but in most guidelines for the general population, screening starts at age 50. Uh, colonoscopy has been viewed as the gold standard. However, if you have an immediate family member who's had a colon cancer, then what we usually do for younger people uh, for screening family members is subtract 10 years off the age of the person who has the cancer. So, for example, if someone has their cancer at age 45, we would want their immediate family members to have colonoscopy by age 35. So uh, I, I strongly recommend if a person's had an immediate family member with colon cancer, they should have a colonoscopy. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, and our next question is from Barbara A. Your line is open. Has metastatic uh, colon cancer, and he's you know tried many of the um, chemos, and now he's on Stravago, which makes his legs swell and you know other things. But because of his diabetes, they won't give him the Lasix. Is there anything else that you could recommend? And Barbara, we just missed the first part of your question, so if you could. Oh, okay. My husband has metastatic uh, colon cancer, and he's been through a lot of chemo. Now he's on Stravago, which has a lot of side effects, um, but one of the things is that his swallow hard for him to walk, but they won't give him Lasix because of the diabetes. Is there anything else that you could recommend? Thank you. That's an excellent question, and it, um, I'm going to ask our physicians, to, our oncologists, to answer this in a general way. Um, Dr. Bakai Saab, do you want to start first? Yes, uh, happy to. The, the, you know, the, the, these agents overall, I mean, this belongs to a class of agents called tyrosine kinase inhibitors that, that tackles a lot of targets, are commonly associated with uh, with toxicities that involve the hands and the feet, uh, including swelling and, and redness and hotness. And, and, and those overall are, are linked to the, to usually for, for most patients, to the dose of of the the drug, and occasionally the physician may decide to drop the dose a little bit down, especially if if it's uh, if it's significant or hold the dose. But that's that's of course you know a, a clinical decision. Uh, there are also other reasons why patients with colon cancer, especially when they're really advanced, uh, why they may have uh, uh, swelling, and that may not be related to the drug itself. Again, I mean that has to be uh, the treating physician. 
decision about whether it's related or not. It could be related to malnutrition, loss of protein, and albumin, and that, that becomes a completely different discussion about, uh, you know, whether to optimize nutrition, whether that's possible or not. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Benson, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I I agree. Uh, you know, it there certainly are side effects from drugs, but uh, part of uh, the evaluation is to assess uh, whether there are other factors causing a symptom. So uh, otherwise, you know, we we can't be more specific than that. Excellent. Do you want to talk about that, the differential, the concept of a differential diagnosis? How do you figure things out? I realize that's a, a big question to ask. <laughs> Just so if she underst- they understand that. <clears throat> Well, um, you know, in, in terms of the actual uh, cancer, um, and depending on the stage, we, we usually have fairly good guidelines how we evaluate people. But, of course, many people have other medical conditions, and uh, that's why it's very important, for example, for oncologists to make sure they're in communication with an individual's primary care physician, or if people have other specialists like endocrinologists or cardiologists or pulmonologists or nephrologists, for example, these are all individuals that I work with routinely. And uh, when we talk about the importance of communicating with the healthcare team, um, this is not exclusively the oncology team, uh, but also uh, people have other physicians who have been uh, important in providing assessment and treatment, and keeping those linkages is really important so that people's uh, other conditions that may not be related to the cancer are managed appropriately. Uh, and also we have to sort out, it, you know, if something is a toxicity. Now, a toxicity may aggravate another medical condition. And so it, it's very important to have the communication and to sort uh, all of these factors out. Well, thank you very much. And I want to thank our speakers. This has been a, uh, an amazing call, actually. Um, and I have to thank our speakers. They are phenomenal. I want to thank our participants who asked really such great questions. And I also want to thank all of you who have been listening. And I recognize that you do have many questions that um, we could go on a bit longer, but we did say this would be an hour program. So I would like to um, kind of go over with you resources to get some of your questions answered. Even if you asked a question, we do ask you to take that question back to your healthcare team because, again, they know you the best, and so you can take what you've learned here and take it back to your treating healthcare team. And even if it was someone else's question but it made you think about something, again, go back to your healthcare team. But we also know that you all like to go to other resources that are credible, that actually um, give you good information um, that are well-researched uh, by, by really careful researchers. And so what I would recommend is that we do have the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have both a toll-free number and they have a website as well and a live chat feature on their website, www.cancer.gov. You'll be getting all the resources I mentioned or anyone mentioned during the call when you get your evaluation in a day or two. In that evaluation will be not just an evaluation, which we do like you to complete, but you also will get a list of resources to contact. So because we are partnering with some colorectal organizations on this call, we'll recommend them. And there are other organizations we'll recommend as well, including um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, um, the American Cancer Society, um, Colorectal Cancer Alliance, Fight Colorectal Cancer. So we'll include those other groups as well and all the other groups that we've partnered with, but we'll highlight some so that you'll actually um, be able to go to those groups and get some additional information and then, again, take it back to your treating healthcare team who really we don't ever want to um, go. Um, we want to be sure that all your communication, because they're the people treating you, that you get it from, from that team, um, that they work with you as well. 
but we hope that you're getting this extra information will allow you to ask more informed questions, feel more confident asking questions. Our speakers on today's program really stress the importance of your communicating with your healthcare team. And for those of you who would like to access the resources that uh, that uh, Mr. Sincata Eichenfeld uh, went over with you, that Cancer Care offers all of our psychosocial programs and support services, you can contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or go to our website at www.cancercare.org. And um, so we have lots of services that you can access directly from us. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I also want to recognize that this is a challenging time for the world, not only the United States, but all countries of the world right now, and um, that we um, realize that in addition to coping with your cancer, you actually have other concerns on your mind as well. Be sure to discuss those with your treating healthcare team. Thank you all again, and I wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.